Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. Whether you're here in the room or you're online, we are really, really glad that you're here. And I want you to know something. I want you to know something. We are not just a church in Charlottesville, but we also want to be a church for Charlottesville, okay? Not just a church in Charlottesville, but also a church for Charlottesville. So what that means is we have a vision for the growth and health of our church, for helping you grow as a follower of Jesus, for helping your family grow as followers of Jesus. Man, we're passionate about that. But we also have a vision for reaching, serving, and blessing our community, okay? For reaching serving and blessing the community that we're involved in. And the major way that that happens throughout the year is through our missional communities, okay? So our MCs have all kinds of partnerships where they're serving our community. So some of our MCs are partnering in a refugee neighborhood, reaching out to refugee families who've been relocated here and are trying to understand how to live life in America. We have other MCs that are partnering with local schools to support students who need coats and to do, man, refresh projects on landscaping. We still have others that are partnering with, man, teenage moms to help them get the support that they need. So you are doing an amazing job. If you're an MC serving our community all throughout the year, but here's what we want to do one time in the year this summer We just want to pour fuel on the fire of what our MCs are already doing Okay, we want to mobilize our church to invest hundreds of volunteer hours and thousands of dollars Into our community. We're calling that event serve the city Okay, we're calling that event Serve the City, and it's going to be a three-day event happening on June 23rd through the 25th. So a few weeks from now, it's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And during that three-day period, you'll have an opportunity to sign up to volunteer with one of our partners, okay? You can, man, help pack care bags for the homeless population in our community so that, man, when you're driving through the city, you have something to be able to palpably bless someone who is in need. You can sign up, man, to help refresh and reclaim parts of Greenbrier Elementary School, man, that, that needs some landscaping help. You could sign up to put in a prayer walking path here at Cross Life Church to just say thank you to this church for being such gracious hosts to us. You can even uh, sign up to help gather supplies for a ladies' tea time that's going to be happening in one of our refugee communities, okay? Now, honestly, I'm less concerned with how we serve, and I'm much more concerned with that we serve. Okay, I'm less concerned with how we do it, and I'm more concerned that we do it. And the reason is that when you became a follower of Jesus, serving is no longer something you do. Serving is someone that you are. You don't just serve. You are now a servant. And the reason for that is that Jesus said of himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what that means is when you became a follower of Jesus, you became a servant. And so I want you to serve. I want you to be a part of Serve the City, even if that means, man, taking a morning or an afternoon off of work, even if that means giving up a Saturday and putting on your work clothes so that we can bless our community because it is part of who you are as a follower of Jesus, and it's a part of our identity as a church. So you'll be hearing more details over the coming weeks about this event. But if you're ready to go, if you're like, yes, Josh, I want to sign up today, you can go to centerseville.com backslash STC, okay, like serve the city, and all of the information about the different volunteer spots will be on there. And the first 50 people to do so will get a serve the city t-shirt, okay? So uh, don't miss out on that, all right? So go ahead, jump on there, sign up early to help us plan, okay? I'm really excited about that. Well, with that said, you can open up a Bible if you have one, you can type to or turn Turn to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. I did a straw poll this week among my family and friends, and I asked this question. Who is the greatest movie villain of all time? 
who is the greatest movie villain of all time? And some of the list was pretty traditional, right? A lot of Darth Vader's in there. Okay, Darth Vader, the number one vote getter. Um, the Joker from Dark Knight Rises, so it was a pretty good bad guy. Uh, this was a good one. Um, Scar from The Lion King. I mean, we all knew a cat was going to be on the list, right? Like, you just knew that was going to happen. Um, but we also had some less traditional uh, options that were thrown out there. Um, Sid, the creepy kid from Toy Story. He's a pretty bad one, right? Uh, how about Regina George, the leader of the plastics from Mean Girls, right? Like, some of you were like, that was high school for me. Okay. Um, oh, I love this one too. The Wet Bandits. Remember the Wet Bandits from uh, Home Alone and Home Alone 2? And then <laughs> my personal favorite, um, Daniel LaRusso, the protagonist from the 80s classic Karate Kid. Now, here's the argument that my friend made and that I think has been made on several sitcoms uh, throughout the years. That LaRusso stole the karate championship by utilizing an illegal mantis kick. That this move right here is illegal. He stole the karate championship and he also proceeded to then steal the man's girlfriend. Okay? Guys, that is pretty savage. Okay? That is pretty savage. Well, no matter who you think the greatest movie villain of all time is, here's what we all know. Man, great stories always have great villains. And the greater the villain, the greater the hero has to be to overcome him. And when we're reading the gospel of Mark, it's helpful to know who the characters are, right? It's, it's not very surprising. The hero is Jesus, okay? He is the protagonist. And the main antagonist throughout the entire gospel of Mark are the Pharisees, okay? The Pharisees are the villains in the gospel of Mark. They clash with Jesus again and again. We're going to see it happen two more times in our passage today. And from a human perspective, they are the reason that Jesus was crucified, now, if you grew up in Sunday school, one of the first things that you learn in Sunday school is you don't want to be a Pharisee, okay? And all the picture books are always scowling and plotting something, right? Like, you've got like snakes coming out of their sleeves and stuff. Like, you know that you're not supposed to be a Pharisee. But here's the deal. It's easy to act like a Pharisee without realizing it. In fact, I would suggest that many of us today and this week have acted just like the Pharisees acted then. We just don't realize it. What can happen is we can unintentionally become a spiritual villain. We can find ourselves clashing with Jesus over the same things that the Pharisees clash with Jesus over. So what I want to do in this passage is I want to help you see ways where maybe you are living like a Pharisee and then how we can avoid that, okay? So we're going to learn, man, three ways not to be a Pharisee from this passage. So look at verse 23 with me. It starts this way. One Sabbath, which was a Saturday for them, he, Jesus, was going through the grain field. So that was either wheat or corn. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, here's the first way not to be a Pharisee. Number one, don't edit the Bible. Don't edit the Bible. So Jesus and his disciples were walking through this grain field on the Sabbath, and his disciples started to pluck grain and kind of husk it in their hands like this. It's kind of like shucking peanuts at a baseball game, okay? That is what they were doing. They were just having a snack. You could, man, pull grain off, and you could do this, and then you could eat kind of like, um, like kernels, right? Well, this was absolutely permitted in the Bible. So in the Bible, you weren't allowed to like go and harvest someone else's field, like that'd be stealing, but it was permitted if you were walking by to kind of grab some grain as an act of hospitality. So this was clearly permitted. And yet the Pharisees say, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath to do? So, so what's going on here? Why are the Pharisees accusing the disciples of doing something that is not lawful, of being in sin, of breaking God's commandments? Because they had edited the Bible. You see, in Exodus chapter 20, God had given his people the command to keep the Sabbath. You can go back and read that sometime. And this is what it said. It said, hey, keep the Sabbath. Don't do any normal work on that day. Instead, rest. Okay, simple enough. But the Pharisees had developed this complex set of rules 
that they added on top of what Exodus 20 actually said. And it was sort of their way of making sure that you didn't get anywhere close to working on the Sabbath. And at this point in history, they had 39 activities which were prohibited on the Sabbath. Things like running, cooking, harvesting, and tying a knot. Tying a knot, I kid you not. Tying a knot, I worked on that all week. Tying a knot, okay? So, so, I mean, this crazy list of things that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. So here's what's happening. The Pharisees are accusing the disciples of harvesting because they were shucking peanuts. They're like, look, this is all, these are our rules. You're not allowed to harvest. You're shucking peanuts. That counts as harvesting. You are in sin. You see, according to God's word, the disciples were fine. But according to what the Pharisees had added to God's word, the disciples were in sin. The disciples weren't working, they were snacking, right? Praise God for snacks, right? They were snacking on the Sabbath. We should all do such, right? But they were accusing them of working. Now, I know that that sounds pretty ridiculous, right? You're like, oh my goodness, like religious people, I just can't stand them. But here's the thing, we're prone to do the same thing in a different way. We're prone to edit the Bible too, just like the Pharisees. Sometimes we edit the Bible by adding to it, just like they did, okay? Here's what we do. We take a principle from the Bible, something that's in the scriptures, then we take our own personal convictions, we put it on top of what the Bible says, and then we hold everyone else to our standard, okay? So let me give you one that I remember growing up, dress code, all right? So the Bible says that we should dress modestly and in a way that is uh, consistent with our God-given gender. That's all it says. Right? But in a lot of churches that I grew up in, if you didn't wear a jacket and tie to church, you were irreverent. Right? And you were judged as being worldly. Now, can you wear a jacket and tie here? Sure. I wouldn't do it today. It's 100,000 degrees outside. Right? But like, you can wear a jacket and tie. That's fine. But you can't call other people to your standard. And when they don't call it sin, right? That's adding to the Bible. All right, let's get a little bit uh, more in your business here. How about parenting? How about parenting? So the Bible says that parents are to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord without provoking them to anger. All right, that's kind of a good summary of what the Bible says. It does not say where you should send your kids to school. It doesn't say if you, if you should do public school or private school or Christian school or homeschool or some combination of those schools. It just says raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord without provoking them to anger. But aren't we tempted as parents to say whatever choice I've made for my kids is what all serious Christians should do? Right? That's adding to the Bible. Right? Or how, about, how about this one? Um, justice. Okay? So the Bible talks about justice as emanating from God's character, that God is just, and therefore he defines what is justice. And throughout the scriptures, God's people are called to pursue justice in the world. But the Bible does not give us a specific platform for how to do that. Right? It just says, hey, you need to pursue justice in the world, follow the leadership of the Spirit, follow the leadership in your context, figure out how to do that. But if you go online, you will find Christians eviscerating anyone that does not agree with their particular platform or strategy for achieving justice. Friends, that is adding to the Bible. That is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. So sometimes we edit the Bible by adding to it. Other times we edit the Bible for, by subtracting from it. Right? This is where we sort of overlook or, or don't pay attention to or remove things that we don't like, things that challenge us. And I say all of, all of this to um, someone, if you would consider yourself like, man, a Christian who believes the Bible is the word of God, I'm talking to you. If you're here and you're not, you're not yet a Christian, you're not sure what you believe about the Bible, I wouldn't expect you to submit yourself to it, okay? So this is kind of like insider family talk for us, like kind of Bible-believing Christian folk, okay? And I'm going to get in your business just a little bit because I love you, all right? So let's talk about this. Let's talk about money. Okay, let's talk about money. The Bible is very, very clear that everything belongs to God. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the people and those who dwell therein. 
and that we are his stewards, his managers, and that he has entrusted us with a certain amount of resources to be used for his glory. And if you look throughout the whole Bible, you'll see that it says, hey, it's important that you devote a large amount of your generosity to God's mission through the local church, and that 10% is a good place to start. You may have heard that as tithing before, right? It's very, very clear that's a good place to start in the scriptures. But the most recent data that I've seen is that your typical Bible-believing Christian in America gives less than 2% of their annual income to the church. What is that? That's subtracting from the Bible. Or how about this? Let's talk about evangelism, okay? So the Bible is very clear that God is a missionary God, that God loves people that are far from him. It's why he sent Jesus Christ to the world, so that people who, man, are struggling with sin, people who are broken, people who have hard situations can be redeemed and healed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's literally what Jesus said he came to do. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Yet a recent poll found that the majority of Bible-believing Christians in America have never shared their faith, and a large amount of them don't think it's their responsibility to do so, that somehow that's like the pastor's job. What is that? That's subtracting from the Bible. Or just to make sure I've thoroughly offended everyone in the room at this point, okay, let's talk about sex for a second. Okay, so the Bible's very clear that sex is God's idea, that God designed it as a good gift to be enjoyed between one man and one woman within marriage for life. And that when we do that, we experience the blessing of God's design. Yet again, a recent survey found that 50% of people who say that they are Bible-believing Christians believe that casual sex outside of marriage is fine. What is that? That's subtracting from the Bible. Anytime we add or subtract from the Bible, we're acting like a Pharisee. Whether we do it formally or whether we do it functionally, Whether we actually get out a pair of scissors like Thomas Jefferson did and cut the things out of the Bible we don't like, or we just read over them or don't apply them in in our lives. Anytime we add or subtract to the Bible, we are acting like a Pharisee. So let me ask a question. Why wouldn't wouldn't we want to edit the Bible? I mean, it seems a lot easier, right? I mean, it's like, hey, I like 75% of what it says in here. Why not just like take the 75% and, and leave out the 25%? And the answer is that the Bible contains God's design for every area of our lives for our families, personal lives, choices, money, sex life, career, everything. And when we live according to God's design, we have the opportunity to experience God's blessing. But when we don't live according to God's design, we end up in what the Bible calls brokenness, right? Any area of our life that we don't live according to God's design, we end up in brokenness. And some of us have felt this, right? Some of us became Christians because we lived in brokenness for so long and realized there's a better way, there's a better design. And brokenness feels like, man, emptiness. It feels like guilt. It feels like rejection, shame, or regret. Friends, the Bible is God's gift to us. It's his gift to us so that we might know his design for every area of our lives, so that we might live in the arena of his blessing. So anytime we edit the Bible, not only do we act like Pharisees, but we also do ourselves a disservice. Okay, so that's the first way not to be a Pharisee. Don't edit the Bible. Let's keep reading. Verse 25, and Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So here's the second way not to be a Pharisee. Number two, don't turn a blessing into a burden. Don't turn a blessing into a burden. After the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of being in sin, Jesus asked them a question. He said, wait, have you, have you never read about the story of David? Now, he was being totally sarcastic, right? 
They literally made a living reading the Bible. Okay, like that's what, of course they had read the story of David. So what is Jesus doing? He's showing them the inconsistency of their own position. He's showing them the inconsistency of their own position. He's referring to a story that occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And basically David, David's the shepherd who killed Goliath the giant, right? So David has killed Goliath at this point, and then he becomes kind of a national hero. So he starts working for the king, and he's a servant in the king's house. Well, then the king gets really jealous. It's a king named Saul. He's jealous of David. He thinks he's going to try to steal his throne, so he tries to kill David. So David kind of finds out about this at the last second, and so he and kind of a group of close followers are on the run, okay? They're running for their lives. They don't have any food. They didn't have any time to pack. They're in danger of starving to death. They're weak. They're tired. They're weary, and they come to this town named Nob. Okay, and Nob is where um, the Ark of the Covenant was located, right? It was where the tabernacle, the tent that the people would set up, where God's presence dwelt was located, and it's where all the, high, it's where all the priests lived, okay? So it's where they offered sacrifices. This was kind of pre-temple, okay? So he's basically at the house of God, as Jesus said. And he gets there, and he talks to the high priest, and he says, hey, we're on the run, we're starving, do you have any food, right? And as a classic single guy, the priest is like, no, I don't have anything, Right? Like, there's nothing in the pantry, right? There's like a, a can of black beans, and that's it. Um, and, so, and so he says, well, the only food that we have is what's called the bread of the presence. All right? And the bread of the presence was set out each morning before the tabernacle, before God. It was holy bread. And then at the end of the day, it was eaten by the priests, but only by the priests. It was a very holy thing. So in normal circumstances, David and his men were not allowed to eat this bread. And yet, the high priest looks at the situation. He looks at what's going on. And he decides, it is a good idea for me to give you this holy bread. So he gives the bread to David and his men. David and his men eat the bread. They don't starve. They're able to escape so that David can one day become the king of Israel. And here's the clincher. Neither David nor the high priest are condemned in the story. There is never any moment it's like, hey, they shouldn't have done that. No, this is a praiseworthy worthy thing. So track with me here. Why was this okay? Why was it okay for David and his men to eat the bread? Because the bread existed to help people relate to God. It was a symbol designed to help the people of God relate to God appropriately, okay? So when David came in and he was about to die, you can't relate to God appropriately if you're dead, okay? So it was okay in this moment for the priest to give him the bread. Why? Because man was not created to serve the bread. The bread was created to serve man. You tracking with me? Jesus then turns and in verse 27 says, in the same way, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God created the Sabbath to be a blessing, to be a time each week where you rested from work, where you centered yourself on the Lord, where you worshiped him, where you man, enjoyed good food with family and friends. The Sabbath was created for man to be a blessing to us. But the Pharisees had taken the Sabbath and turned it into a burden. They had filled it with all of these restrictions and all of these regulations. They had made it like a chain that hung on people's necks. A day that was supposed to be a blessing became something that people dreaded. And I would submit to you that church is like that for a lot of people, isn't it? Something that was intended to be a blessing to you, to strengthen your faith, to help you meet and develop strong friendships, to be a time that you remember the God's, God's goodness to you and you rejoice has for many people become a burden that they hate doing. It's like the, it's like the worst hour of their week. So Jesus says, no, the Sabbath was not made, or the Sabbath was not made so that man would serve it. Man, man was given the Sabbath as a gift. Now, if you're, if you're the Pharisees at this point, you've got your counterpoint ready. And their counterpoint is, yeah, man, that was King David. Like, King David gets to do stuff that you don't get to do, guy from Nazareth. Like, that's kind of their opinion. So Jesus just cuts off their counterargument in verse 28 and says this, the Son of Man himself is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
So this is a big claim for Jesus. This is Jesus saying, I'm not just a rabbi from Nazareth. I am the divine son of man. I created the Sabbath, and as such, I determine the purpose and the meaning of the Sabbath. And if I tell you that the Sabbath was made for man, then the Sabbath was made for man. All right, so that is what Jesus is saying. Now, here's how this applies to us today. Just like the Sabbath was created to be a blessing and not a burden to man, so all the commands of the Bible were created to be a blessing and not a burden to us. In fact, in Psalm 19, the same King David would say things about God's commands like this. He would say, man, the commands of God are sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. He would say, I delight in the commands of God. I long for the commands of God. I love the commands of God. He even said, the commands of God enlighten my eyes. How could someone say that about the commands in the scriptures? It's because he understood them correctly. You see, when you understand the Bible correctly, you see it as a blessing and not a burden. When you understand the Bible correctly, you see it as a blessing and not a burden. But in my experience, I've seen people make two big mistakes in this arena. It's sort of veering off into one ditch or into the other, okay? The first ditch is when you start to think of God's word as a staircase to heaven, a staircase to heaven, a long, steep, exhausting way to make yourself right with God and avoid hell. And if you think of God's commands that way, they will not feel like a blessing to you. They'll feel like a burden to you. They'll feel like pressure to you. They'll feel like something that you can never accomplish because try and try and try, you can never be good enough. So if you're thinking of the Bible as a staircase to heaven, it's not gonna feel like a blessing to you. It's gonna feel like a burden. That's one ditch we can go off into. The other ditch that we can go off into is when we think of God's word as a cage. We think of God's word as a cage, something, a repressive, restrictive, antiquated book that tries to keep you from doing what you want to do and being who you want to be, right? It's just this old-fashioned book that doesn't understand me, doesn't understand how I feel, doesn't understand my circumstances, and it's trying to keep me down. But that's not right either. God is the creator. He is the sustainer. He knows what is best for us, and he's given us his word so that we would walk in flourishing, not so that we would be restricted and caged up like a bird. So if those are the two wrong ways to see God's word, the two ditches, what is the right way to see God's word? Well, I'll give you three Ps, okay, because I like alliteration. All right, number one, the Bible is a picture of God's character. The Bible is a picture of God's character. The moral law of the Bible, so think about like the Ten Commandments, show us what God is like. So for instance, we're called to be faithful in marriage because God is faithful in all his ways. He never breaks faith. We're called to be honest because God is totally truthful. He never lies. He never makes a promise and then goes back on it. The, all the historical narratives in the Bible of, of ways that God has been faithful to his people throughout the ages are intended to be a blessing to us, showing us that just, because how, just as God was faithful then, he will be faithful in our lives now. So it's a picture of God's character. Second, the Bible is a prescription for salvation. It's a prescription for salvation. So just like a good doctor will diagnose a problem and then prescribe a solution, the Bible does the same thing in our lives. It prescribes the problem in our lives and the problem in the world as sin. It says the reason that there is brokenness in the world, the reason that things are not as they should be, is because we have all rebelled against our creator. So it diagnoses our problem, but then, praise the Lord, it gives us a solution. It says the solution is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived the life that you should have lived but haven't, and died the death that you and I deserved, but then rose again in victory, so that anyone, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, if you will repent and believe, can be saved and can be brought into the family of God. Praise the Lord. 
So the Bible is a prescription of salvation. And finally, the Bible is a path for human flourishing. It is a path for human flourishing. As the creator, God knows how life works best. And the commands of scripture lay out a path for human flourishing. Just imagine for a minute if everyone in the world started obeying the Ten Commandments. Our world would be a much better place. You'd never have to lock your doors. You'd never have to, man, suffer betrayal. Right? There would be no more broken families from the impact of infidelity. There would be, man, no one that would, that would be, man, killed in un, in unjustly. I mean, the world would be a much better place if we all just obeyed the Ten Commandments. Or think of it this way. Think of God like a really good dad who's getting ready to go to work, and he says, hey, kids, I've stocked the pantry with all the best snacks, right? There are Cheez-Its in there, right? There are Oreos in there. Like, there are Fruit Loops in there. You're, like, getting my pantry right now. Um, there are healthy gluten-free options in there. Like, you know, there's a lot of celery in there, too. Um, anyway, so I've, I've packed the whole pantry with delicious snacks, okay? And you can enjoy all of it, but, hey, don't drink the bleach that is under the kitchen sink. Okay? Now, is that a restriction? Yeah. But would you be like, my dad is so restrictive. I just like can't believe he won't let me just do what I want to do and drink the bleach, right? No, it's like, obviously, it's a constraint, but it's a good constraint that, that is for your flourishing. Well, that is how the word of God works. As we order our lives according to God's design, we live in the arena of God's blessing. So what that means is that many of us need to reframe how we think about the Bible, we need to re it's not a book of rules that you're trying to earn your salvation from. It's not a restrictive cage that's trying to keep you down. It is God's blessing to you so that you might enjoy the life that he created you to enjoy. Here's the thing. If God's word teaches something, then by definition, it is good, true, and beautiful. If God's word teaches something, then by definition, it is true, good, and beautiful because God is true, good, and beautiful. And if the Bible is from God, then it's gonna be the same way that he is. And what that means is that, man, we should be gracious and winsome and humble in how we engage with people who are not Christians, who do not believe the Bible, but we should, hear me, never apologize. Ever apologize for what God's word says because it is good and it is beautiful and it is for our flourishing. Heaven help us the day that the church becomes ashamed of one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. If it is taught in the Bible, then by definition, we maybe don't always understand it at first, but by definition, it is true, good, and beautiful because God is true, good, and beautiful, okay? But before we move on to our next point, I need to explain something just little in this text. So here's the deal. Um, Mark said that this whole story, the David story, happened in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. I don't know if you saw that. But if you flip back to 1 Samuel 21, you'll read that Abiathar was not the high priest. It was a guy named Ahimelech. And sometimes skeptics will say, see, the Bible has errors in it. The Bible is, you know, contradicts itself. You can't trust the Bible. Was well, that true? It's not. You just have to understand how culture worked back then, okay? So being the high priest was a big deal, like kind of like being the president today. And Abby Arthur was a really famous high priest, okay? So think of him sort of as like Abraham Lincoln, all right? Like a really, really good big deal president. So in the same way that you might say in the era of Lincoln, even though there were other presidents who were president at that time, that's how Jesus is speaking. In the time of, in the era of Abiathar, it rooted it historically for people. And if you look carefully, Mark doesn't actually say that Abiathar was the high priest at the time. He says in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, okay? 
99% of the time when you run into something like that in the Bible, a little understanding of the cultural background, you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Mark knew the stories of the Old Testament way better than we do, okay? So it's not like he'd be like, oh, I just made an editing mistake, all right? That's what's going on. So if you're asking that question, I hope that answered for you. All right, let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched, they being the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. If you want to circle something in your Bible, circle hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. All right, so here's the final way not to be a Pharisee. Number three, don't reject Jesus when he confronts you. Don't reject Jesus when he confronts you. So later on that Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples are in the synagogue, and there was a man there that day who had a withered hand. We don't know if it had been crushed, if he had really bad arthritis. We don't, we don't know. We just know he had a withered hand, which meant he couldn't work because you needed both your hands then to do almost everything. So this was a, a big deal, big deal to this guy, but it wasn't life-threatening. I mean, his hand had probably been withered for a while. And the Pharisees had one of their rules that you were allowed to heal on the Sabbath only if it was a life-threatening situation, right? Life-threatening situation, great. Otherwise, save it till Sunday, right? Because Sabbath was Saturday for them, right? So this guy was definitely not in a life-threatening situation. So you can understand the tension that's in the room. Jesus and the Pharisees just clashed. I mean, it might've been minutes beforehand. Then they all go to synagogue. They're all there. The Pharisees are kind of in their corner on team Pharisee and the disciples are on this corner on team Jesus, you know? And there's like this guy in the middle with a withered hand. He's like, I don't know what's going on. It's just like, you know, this is weird. And, and then Jesus says, hey, come here. And he calls the guy in front of him in the middle of the synagogue. And then he turns and he looks bold-faced at the Pharisees. Guys, here's what you need to understand. Jesus was intentionally creating conflict. Intentionally. He could have healed this guy the next day. He could have healed this guy after the synagogue. He could have healed this guy in the corner. But Jesus said, hey, come here, stand right next to me in front of everybody. And he looks bold-faced into the eyes of the Pharisees and says, hey, tell me, is it lawful to save life or to take life on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Right? And the Pharisees don't answer because the answer to the question is so obvious, but they're not willing to forfeit their religious traditions. And then the text says, this is fascinating, verse 5, it says that Jesus looked at them with anger and was grieved. The Bible doesn't describe Jesus as being angry very often. But when Jesus is angry, it is almost always at the hardness of someone's heart. And that is what he is angry about. They simply refused to let go of what they thought was right. No, we know best. You don't. We know how to run our lives. We know what we need to do. You can't tell me how to live my life. And these were the teachers of Israel, guys. These were the men that were supposed to be leading the people of God to know him, and yet they were leading them away from him. And so Jesus was angry, and he was grieved, and he asked them this question. They wouldn't even respond. And so then in verse 6, he answered his own question. He looked at the man, and he said, open up your hand. And the man opened it up, and it was totally healed. It was this beautiful picture of what Jesus one day will do for every sickness and every infirmity when he returns to wipe away every tear from every eye and to remove the impact of sin in the world. So Jesus publicly and intentionally confronts the Pharisees and they can't deal with it. Rather than, rather than wonder, maybe we're wrong, maybe the guy that just healed a man by speaking knows what he's talking about, 
they immediately left and they had a meeting with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were this group of guys that were in well with the Romans. And they had this meeting to discuss how can we get rid of this man? How can we get rid of this man? And this was the first in a series of meetings that would lead to Jesus' man arrest, to Jesus' trial, and to Jesus' crucifixion. You see, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, they hardened their hearts against him and against what the Bible said. Guys, we are tempted to do the same thing all the time. Honestly, we are tempted to do the same thing all the time. When the Bible calls you to change, when the Bible calls me to change, what happens? There's part of us that riles up in rebellion. There's part of us that riles up and says, don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me how to live my life. Don't you tell me what feelings of mine are legitimate and not legitimate. We have this internal lawyer that comes to our defense and we start to justify and we start to rationalize our behavior. We say, I did it because I was hungry or because I was tired or lonely or because she doesn't respect me or because he's working all the time. We say, it's not my fault. It's my family of origin's fault. It's not my fault. It was, it was the circumstances at work. It's not my fault. It's the Bible's fault. If it wasn't such an antiquated, old-fashioned book, this wouldn't be an issue. Guys, that was the Pharisees in a nutshell. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me how to live. Our, uh, our society tries to divide people in lots of different categories based on age and stage and gender and ethnicity and education and economic status and on and on and on. And then our society says, hey, whatever category you're in, you will then act like this because of that category. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that there's really only two categories of people in the world, no matter your age or stage, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your education, your economic status. The Bible says the two kinds of people in the war world are soft-hearted people and hard-hearted people. Soft-hearted people and hard-hearted people. And the truth is both groups are sinful. Both groups have bad habits. Both have made mistakes. Both have regrets. Both are in imperfect and broken. But soft-hearted people are willing to admit it. Soft-hearted people are willing to admit that they need a savior and hard-hearted people simply are not. Friends, the dividing line of eternity runs through the middle of every human heart. The dividing line of eternity runs through the middle of every human heart. The reality is that no sin can keep you out of heaven other than hard-heartedness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your record is. It doesn't matter how many regrets you have. If you will humble yourself before the Lord. If you will cry out to Christ to save you, he will cleanse you and he will give you a new identity. But if you will not, Jesus will not be your savior. Do you know what he'll become? He will become your judge. Because the book of Revelation says that when Jesus returns, every knee is going to bow before him, some of them in worship and some of them in terror. Because the soft-hearted understand something about Jesus that the hard-hearted don't. He will be glorified. He will be shown to be right. There, it's not like we're going to get to final judgment. There's going to be a debate about who was right and who was wrong. It's going to be absolutely evident that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is right, and some of us who are soft-hearted and bowed before that will be welcomed into his presence, and those of us who hardened our hearts and stiffened our necks against him will be cast out. And the only thing that makes a difference is not if you grew up in church. It's not if you're moral. It's not if you give money. It's not if you're a good mom or dad. It's simply the state of your heart. Are you soft-hearted towards the Lord? When Jesus confronts you, do you repent? When a good friend confronts you, do you repent? 
When the Bible confronts you, do you repent? Or like the Pharisees, do you harden your heart and do you say, don't you tell me what to do? The difference between heaven and hell runs through the middle of every human heart. So the question is, the question is, how do we have a soft heart? Well, it has everything to do with trust. If you trust Jesus, you will repent when he calls you to change. If you don't trust Jesus, then you will reject him. It's as simple as that. But if you trust Jesus, if you trust his character, if you trust his wisdom, if you trust his power, if you trust his heart for you, that when he says, hey, this needs to change, you'll say, Jesus, I don't understand this. I really like this thing. You're telling me it needs to change. I'm going to trust you even though, man, it's, sometimes I don't feel like I want to change it. Sometimes the world's telling me I don't need to change it, but I trust you. If you trust Jesus, you will become more and more comfortable saying, Jesus, you're right. I'm wrong. Help me move forward. You see, one of the signs that you are a real Christian is that you are becoming more and more comfortable with the phrase, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You start to develop a soft heart. And hear me, soft hearts transform marriages. Soft hearts transform families. Soft hearts transform friendships. They transform workplaces. They transform everything. So how do we get one? How do we learn to trust Jesus when he's telling us to do something that doesn't seem to make sense to us? By looking at what he did for you. By looking at what he did for you. Take this passage, for example. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being a lawbreaker. But if you look carefully, he actually never did anything. It wasn't, he wasn't the one husking the grain in the fields. That was his disciples. And in the synagogue, he didn't even do anything. He just said, stretch out your hand. The man was the one who stretched out his hand. So even according to the Pharisees' ridiculous rules, Jesus was innocent. He was not a lawbreaker. What they accused him of doing, he never did. But of course we have. He wasn't a lawbreaker, but I am, and you are. Right? We are lawbreakers. We are Sabbath breakers. We are stingy with our money. We are sexually broken. We have edited the Bible and we have hardened our hearts against the Lord. So, what did Jesus do? He suffered as a lawbreaker in our place. He said, I didn't break the Sabbath, but I'm going to hang on a cross like I did. He said, I'm not stingy. I'm very generous with my finances, but I'm going to hang on the cross like a miser. I'm not sexually broken, but I'm going to hang on the cross like I am. I haven't hardened my heart, but I'm going to die like I have. Why? So that you don't have to. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, took on flesh and came to earth to trade places with rebels so that we could be justified instead of condemned so that we could be adopted rather than forsaken, so that we could have eternal life rather than eternal death. And any God who would do that for you is worth trusting. Father, we thank you that you are worth trusting. Jesus, I thank you that you were not willing to back down from those who wanted to load your people with rules upon rules, but you came to set us free. I love the words of that song, whom the Son sets free is free indeed child of God. Lord, I pray today for all of those here who are children of God, that they would feel that reality, that they would lean into that reality, and that they would trust you, that your words are good, that you have a good, beautiful design for them. And I pray for all of those here or online who don't know you, God, that they would accept the incredible offer of the gospel, that no matter who they are or what they've done, if they're willing to soften their hearts and repent, you will forgive them, 
and you will welcome them into your family. Lord, make us a church full of soft-hearted people. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.